2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. And of course, if you were here with us last week, you know that this is just a continuation of the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah that we began last week. So let's start reading in verse number 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in the city, one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing, except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but He would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord, and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he is dead? Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, 
but he shall not return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba his wife and went into her and lay with her, and so she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Father God, thank you so much for this wonderful conclusion to this story. We thank you, as we said last week, that the story didn't end with chapter 11, but there is a chapter 12, and Lord, what a wonderful chapter it is. I pray today that you'll fill me with your spirit to make this clear and plain. I pray today, Father, that you would be our teacher, that you would help us to see all the reason for rejoicing that is here. And I pray, Father, that if this message is specifically needed by anyone in this room, that, Lord, you'll apply it to their heart. Help them today to respond even as David did. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, this message today is a continuation of last week's message. You will recall last week we learned some things from the story of David and Bathsheba in chapter 11. We learned that sin is real. We spent a lot of time talking about the reality of sin. And we also learned that sin brings results. And we saw some very sad results to the sin of David and Bathsheba. Chapter 12 kind of continues that, doesn't it? It kind of talks more about the results of this sin. But it also gives us such reasons for rejoicing. Because in this chapter we see David's repentance that led to his restoration and the restoration of his relationship with God. And I don't know about you, but I think it is a truly wonderful ending to the story. I entitled today's message, Rejoice, because the results are in. Because how can we not rejoice when we realize the results that are described here? When we realize how God can take our very worst and make it into his very best. That's what happened here. All the wickedness, all the ugliness, all the evil that occurred in chapter 11 is held up against all the repentance and the restoration that we see in chapter 12. Chapter 11 shows us how black our heart is. Chapter 12 shows us how wonderful is God's heart. Chapter 11 shows us the depths of sin. Chapter 12 shows us the heights of God's forgiveness. Chapter 11 reminds us of the reason we need a Savior. Chapter 12 reminds us that we have one. In chapter 11, we weep as we see our wickedness. In chapter 12, we rejoice as we see God's righteousness. Timothy Keller said, I am so bad that he had to die. I am so loved that he was glad to die. The first part's chapter 11. Second part's chapter 12. It's a wonderful story. It really is. It started out so black and it ends so glorious. I want us to pull five different phrases out of this passage that we read this morning and just mention a few brief comments about each because I think if we take these five phrases, we'll have the outline of the whole thing. And they are these. First of all, verse number five, the man who has done this shall surely die. The second is in verse number seven, you are that man. The third is in verse number 13, I have sinned against the Lord. The fourth, also in verse number 13, the Lord also has put away your sin. And the fifth and final is in verse 25, he called his name Jedediah. 
Let's look at all those just for a minute this morning. First of all, verse number five, the man who has done this shall surely die. About a year has passed now since the events that we read about in chapter 11. After David's sin with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband, Uriah. And then we read in verse number one that then the Lord sent Nathan to David. At least a year because the child is now born. And uh, so we know that there's somewhere around that amount of time. And God sends Nathan to David. And Nathan tells David a story, a parable. And it was a pretty clear story. I don't think we really need to go into details on, on what the story was. But the interesting thing about the story is David's reaction to it. Did you notice David's reaction to the story? It jumps right out at me. David reacted to the story in absolute righteous rage. He was sitting here in his role as judge of the people of Israel, and he was not thinking of this as a parable at this point that applied to him. He was thinking of it as a real story. This had really happened, and Nathan was coming and reporting the facts. And so he immediately pronounced sentence, and the sentence he pronounced was harsh. Actually, harsher than the law prescribed. There was nothing in the law about a case like this requiring the death of the perpetrator. Exodus chapter 22 and verse number 1 says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox or four sheep for a sheep. David got the fourfold part right, but he added that part about the man that has done this shall surely die. He was angry. He's upset. It's interesting, isn't it, how quick we are to notice sin in other people's lives. Judge sin in other people's lives. To be unnecessarily harsh in our judgment of the sins of others, while completely and totally ignoring the sin that is in our own life. Jesus told a story about that, didn't he? You remember that? In Matthew chapter 7, he said, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your eye. Hypocrite! Exclamation point. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Warren Wiersbe said how easy it is to be convicted about other people's sins. Another man said the sympathies of the king had been deeply enlisted, his indignation aroused, but his conscience was still asleep. And at the time when he was most fatally indulgent to his own sins, he was most ready to condemn the delinquencies and errors of others. David's reaction is interesting. Another thing that jumps out at me as I think about that phrase is, is the length of time that had elapsed. Why, why did it take so long for us to get to this place? Where God comes to Nathan, or God sends Nathan to David and talks to him about this. At least a year had passed. And if you're like me, you sit there and you wonder, what was going on during that year? What was taking place? What was happening with David during that time that God was allowing him to just stay there? Well, one thing we know is that David was continuing to experience the results of his sin. We talked about some of the results last week. But we know that he was continuing to experience those results. We don't see it here, not in chapter 12. But we see it in a couple of psalms that David wrote. After this whole event was over, he wrote Psalm 32. And he wrote Psalm 51. Actually, probably in the other order. 51 is probably the earliest. And both of those psalms dealt with this event. And with the repentance that took place here. Psalm 51, his great psalm of repentance. And in both of those, we get glimpses of what he must have been going through during this year while he was living 
in this sinful condition and unrepentant about it. Estranged from God, if you like. Psalm 32, he said, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. And of course, he's writing in poetic language there, but I think we see some things there, don't we? Don't we see there the conviction of sin? Don't we see there God working in his life? I think we see in those words loss of health. You know, sin, unconfessed in our life, allowing ourselves to just live in a condition of sinfulness can affect us in so many different ways. I see loss of physical health, mental health, emotional health, all bound up in that. That phrase, your hand was heavy upon me. He talked about day and night. He was unable to sleep because of all this that was going on. In Psalm 51, he mentioned some similar things. He talked about the fact that he was continuously and unendingly under conviction. Verse 3 says, my sin is always before me. He talked about the loss of joy. He even talked about physical effects there. He said, may be here joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Psalm 58, verse 1. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Verse 12. He talked about how he had lost his testimony, lost his witness. In verses 14 and 15 of Psalm 51, he talked about how he could no longer worship. And he wanted to be able to worship God again. So what was going on during this long period of time, this period of at least a year, between David's sin and God sending Nathan to confront him? Well, he was still suffering the effects of sin. The effects that all of us suffer when we allow sin to remain unconfessed undealt with in our lives. Alexander McLaren said, David learned what we all learn, that every transgression is a blunder, that we never get the satisfaction which we expect from any sin, or if we do, we get something with it which spoils it all. A nauseous drug is added to the exciting, intoxicating drink which temptation offers, and though its flavor is at first disguised by the pleasanter taste of sin, its bitterness is persistent though slow, and clings to the palate long after that has faded away utterly. Hmm. There's another phrase here that's interesting. It's in verse number 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. You know, this is, this is one of the most dramatic scenes in the Bible. You have to kind of put yourself back there. And if this was a Hollywood script right here, if this was a Hollywood movie, I've got to imagine that as Nathan stuck his bony finger in David's face and said, you are the man, I've got to imagine that thunder would have clapped and lightning would have flashed across the sky at that moment. Because it is a dramatic and amazing moment as the prophet of God stands up to David and says that, you are the man. But you know, God says the same thing to me and the same thing to you today, does he not? It might take a variety of forms, but he has the same message for each of us. Probably very few of us are going to have a prophet of God come and point their finger right at us and say, you are the man. That's not going to take that form. But nonetheless, God is going to tell us the same thing. He's going to reveal to each of us the fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior. He might do it from the pulpit as we're doing here this morning. He might do it by sending a soul winner to knock on your door and ask you about your soul. He might do it over a cup of coffee around the table in somebody's home. He might do it by allowing you to pick up a gospel tract to read. 
He might do it by something you hear on the radio or the internet or television. But regardless of how God chooses to do it, the message is for all of us. You are the man. All of us are sinners in need of a Savior. And if you doubt that, all you need to do is go to Paul's masterful argument in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and following, where he heaps up word upon word and verse upon verse and argument upon argument to make that statement. You are the man. Listen to some of it. He said, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Argument upon argument to make that same point. And then Paul sums it all up in Romans uh, 3.23 when he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You are the man. You are the man. Timothy Keller says, Jesus says in the gospel that everyone is wrong. Everyone is loved. And everyone is called to recognize this and change We talked last week about the fact that nobody gets a pass. That's one of the things we learned. The fact is, if you are breathing, then you're in this verse. You are breathing. Another phrase that jumps out here that we want to talk about is in verse number 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. I love David's response here. David's response is wonderful. It's stated so simply and matter-of-factly that we could think this is just a simple, uh, you know, uh, intellectual response. Oh, oh, okay, okay, you caught me. I have sinned. We could kind of think that's what he's saying. Whenever I read something like that, I always go back to a time when we had a missionary friend who was staying in our home. They weren't missionaries then. We were going to school together, and their children and our children were all young, little, and uh, we were all sitting there, and... and, uh, my friend's little boy did something naughty. I can't remember what he did. He did something naughty. And his father made him sit down and disciplined him. And the little kid just sat there looking so forlorn. I mean, I, I, could, I just want to crack up thinking about it because I can still see it in my mind. He was looking so forlorn because he was being disciplined. But he sat there for what he apparently thought was the prescribed amount of time. And then he looked at his father with this angelic face. And he said, I'm sorry. And you knew, and it was just a formula to him. He knew that if he just sat there long enough and, 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 you know, did his time, all he had to do was say, I'm sorry. And sometimes I think we think that's what David was doing here, but that's not what it was. It was so much more than that. I think we see here David's broken heart over his sin. I think we see his heartfelt confession and repentance of sin. We've already seen the fact that Nathan's, you are the man, was in effect what the Bible says to all of us, you are a sinner. But now I think in David's I have sinned against the Lord, we see the response that we all ought to have to that. We all ought to have that same response. You know, people do respond to the message in a variety of different ways, don't they? Preacher stands and says, you're a sinner. You're in need of salvation. There's all kinds of ways people respond. Some people just get offended. They turn away. Jesus experienced that response. You remember one time he said something particularly hard and the crowds just melted away. And he looked around and the only ones that were left were his disciples. And he said to them, will you too go away? A lot of people do that. 
they get offended and turn away. Some people get angry, try to silence the message. Kind of like, you know, when we were kids, we didn't want to hear something. We'd stick our fingers in our ears and na 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 na. That's kind of what people do. They try to silence. Prophets experienced that. The apostles experienced that. Remember when the apostles were dragged before the authorities and said that they were to never speak in that name again. And I don't know about you, but I'm noticing we're seeing this more and more in America. More and more in our world as folks are trying to silence Christianity. But we will not be silenced. And the Lord will not be silenced. But that's how some respond. They get angry. They try to silence the message. Some, I think, just, just simply ignore the message. And maybe that's the most, most common response. I don't know. Probably is. I mowed my lawn again the other day. And you know what I like to do when I mow my lawn. I mentioned this once before. I put my headphones on and I listen to sermons while I'm mowing my lawn. Last time I mentioned that, you all thought I was crazy. But I still, I still do it. I like to do it. I was listening to Alistair Bay the other day as I was mowing my lawn. And he was preaching a message about uh, Paul's interaction with Agrippa. You remember that. Paul got the opportunity to witness to Agrippa. And we had the amazing time when Agrippa said, you know, almost... You persuade me to be a Christian. And he was telling that story. But then there came the point at the end of that particular story. uh, It's in Acts chapter 26 and verse number 30. When he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves. And Begg's interpretation of that was very interesting. He says, you know, we sometimes we, we, we try to come up with all kinds of things. What does that mean? The king stood up and they turned aside. And he said, I'll tell you what I think it means. I think it means that it's the same thing that happens when we preach an awful lot of times. The final amen is said, and most of the people stand up, and they turn to the person next to them and say, well, what are you doing for lunch? Or they turn to the person next to them and they say, uh, what time does the ball game start? Or they turn to the next person next to them and say, one uh, uh, of the kids coming over. In other words, trivialities is what comes to mind. And they basically, all of this, Paul has preached his heart out to Agrippa. He has done everything he can in his power to proclaim the gospel to the king. And the king stands up and walks away and says, what's for lunch? And that's the way an awful lot of people respond to the message. They just simply choose to ignore it. You know, David could have responded in any one of those ways. And David had other options at his disposal. David could have just basically just off with his head right there where he stood. We now know from the previous chapter that he had it in him. He could have killed Nathan for daring to stand up to him like that. He had the power. He had the authority. He could have ordered him imprisoned. He could have had him removed from the palace. He could have done anything like that. But he did none of those things. He heard the message. And he accepted it from Nathan as the word of God. And he agreed with it. And he confessed his sin. And he repented of his sin. To get some idea of the depths of his contrition and the reality of his repentance, you really have to go to Psalm 51. And you really have to read the wonderful words that he wrote. He poured out his heart in repentance toward God. The title of that psalm, which he gave to it, says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. He wanted all the world to know that he was repenting of that sin. He was hiding nothing. He was laying it all out. And he said, have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. 
For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And he goes on. I have sinned against the Lord. You know, I believe in that little phrase. We see the true greatness of David. David was not great because he was perfect. Clearly, that's the case. We have now seen that. Chapter 11 has graphically portrayed that to us. This was far from a perfect human being. He was a sinner, just like you and just like me. But what made David great was he had a heart for God. What made David great was that when he was confronted with how his sin had injured his relationship with God, he confessed it and he repented and he was Seeking forgiveness. Jesus told a parable one time. Told a parable about a publican and a Pharisee. And you remember they both went down to pray. Prayer. Pharisee prayed with himself. The publican, Jesus said, standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me a sinner. And Jesus said that was the prayer God heard. You know, I find myself convicted by a question as I think about these things, and it's how do I respond when God points the finger at me? How do I respond when God confronts my sin? Do I get offended and stop my ears? Get angry? Try to silence the messenger? Worse yet, pretend I never heard it and just ignore it. Or do I respond like David? Who would later sing in Psalm 32, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And that brings us to the next phrase, which is also in verse number 13. The Lord also has put away your sin. David is now confronted with the full horror of what he has done and the reality of all that has taken place. He's now bearing the full weight of his sin and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And to his amazement, he hears those words. The Lord also has put away your sin. Glory. Hallelujah. Jesus one time told a story. Well, this is not a story. Jesus at one time experienced this actually happening. He was confronted in the street by some scribes and Pharisees. And they flung a woman at his feet. This woman they claimed had been caught in the very act of adultery. And they demanded that he go along with their stoning of this woman. You read about that in John chapter 8. Of course you remember what he did. He knelt down in the dirt in front of them and began scribbling something there. We don't know what he wrote. Just started writing. And they continued to clamor for him to accede to their demands. And finally he looked up and he said, He that is without sin among you. Let him cast the first stone. You remember what happened, right? They dropped their stones, convicted by their own conscience, and they just kind of melted away into the crowd. And eventually Jesus looked up, and the Bible says there he stood alone. There she stood alone with him, just the two of them. And I love what he said. He looked at her and he said, Is there no one here who condemns you? And she said, No one, Lord. And he said, Neither do I condemn you. Hallelujah. How do we not rejoice at the, at the wonderful truth of the Lord has put away your sin? How do we not rejoice at it? That's why I titled the sermon what I did. Rejoice. 
The results are in. David's sin had results. There's no doubt about it. Uriah died. The baby died. Soon we're going to see that his son Amnon defiled his daughter Tamar. And as a result of that, Amnon died. We're going to see that Absalom, his son, tried to take the kingdom away from him. Slept with his wives in front of all of the city. And uh, as a result of that, Absalom died. We're going to see that Adonijah, his son, died. The results of, of his sin were grievous. In the deaths of his four sons, we see his own judgment pronounced upon him. He shall repay fourfold. And four sons died. There's no doubt there was results to his sin. But you know, the greatest result of David's sin was forgiveness. The Lord has put away your sin. Forgiveness. How do we not rejoice at that? In that simple phrase in verse number 13. You know what we have there? We have the whole gospel. The whole gospel. The good news. The fact that God doesn't delight in crushing us for our sins. That God has made every effort and every preparation that our sins might be put away. They might be forgiven and removed as far as the east is from the west. And cast behind his back and forgotten and remembered no more. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. The Lord also has put away your sins. Micah chapter 7, verse 18, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. The Lord also has put away your sin. Acts 13, 38, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of of sins. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 1 John 2.12, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Oh, we ought to all be shouting amen this morning. Hallelujah. He has put away your sins. We need to realize an important point. And that point is this. David's sin was put away because of his repentance. Because of his confession. Had he not had that heart. If that had not been his response. There would have been no forgiveness. The Bible is clear that forgiveness of sin comes to those who seek it with repentant hearts. Those who do not die in their sins and so this morning if you're not willing to come to Christ with the heart that David showed here if you're not willing to come to Christ with a heart that cries out in repentance and confession concerning your sin then you'll die lost you'll die in your sins no forgiveness and you'll have all of eternity in hell to think it through so I wonder this morning have you sought that forgiveness have you repented of your sin have you responded as David did when you were confronted with your need of a savior if you can if you did you can respond to that wonderful song we, we quoted it last week we quoted it again my sin oh the bliss of this glorious thought by sin not the part but the whole is nailed to the cross I bear it no more praise the Lord praise the Lord oh my soul and if you haven't done that you can do that today. Why walk out of here in that state? Do it today. 
Repent of your sin today. But one last thing, one last phrase, and I'll, I'll be done. It's in verse number 25. And you might think this one's an odd one, but I think it may be the most beautiful part of the whole story. Verse number 25. He sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Solomon means peaceable. That's what David and Bathsheba named the baby. Solomon. Peaceable. Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. That's what God made him. Warren Wiersbe said how the grace of God shines in verses 24 and 25. For God chose Bathsheba to be the mother of the next king. Solomon means peaceable. Jedediah means beloved of the Lord. God turned the curse into a blessing. For Solomon was the fulfillment of the promise given to David in 1 Chronicles 22. You know, the fact is nothing is going to stop God's plan. In the middle of all of this, middle of all this story, we see this glorious truth. God had it all planned all along. God knew what he was doing. His plan was still moving forward. He had known all about from the beginning and had actually factored it into his plans. And here is Jedediah. Solomon, the one through whom God would fulfill the Davidic covenant that he had mentioned earlier and we talked about earlier. The one who would sit on the throne after David. And he was actually a result of the union between David and Bathsheba. I don't know about you, but when I look at that, I see a spectacular picture of the forgiveness of God. A spectacular picture of its completeness, its unspeakable beauty. God loved David. And nothing that happened in chapter 11 changed that. God loved Bathsheba. And nothing that happened in chapter 11 changed that. God loved Solomon. Jedediah. Beloved of the Lord. The fact he was the result of their sinful union did not change that. Oh, God's love. So far outshines our sin. But there are no words for that. The songwriter said, could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. Well, the good news, the gospel... The entire teaching of the Bible, I think, is pictured in what we've seen here. In this little interaction between Nathan and David, the whole story's there. It's all in those five little phrases. The man who has done this shall surely die. You are that man. I have sinned against the Lord. And the Lord also has put away your sin. And he called his name Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. If you have not yet responded to that message, if you have not yet responded as David did, when he heard, you are the man. This message is for you today. And so I wonder this morning, what will it be with you? How will you respond? Will you like Agrippa, get up and go have lunch? Or will you like David, say, I've sinned against the Lord, and receive the forgiveness and the restoration of a relationship that is just beyond wonderful?